I didn't say anything. Not yet. I was, I was just contemplating whether or not I should talk about Lisa turning 50. But I, I'm not going to. I decided not to bring it up. So just want you to know I'm not going to talk about it at all. If you guys have your Bibles, <laughs> if you have your Bibles with you, you open up to Psalm, <coughs> book of Psalms will be in Psalm 130 tonight. And, and, uh, and following, still in the Psalms uh, of Ascent, and um, again, songs that they would sing, the, uh, the Jewish men were required to, to go to Jerusalem three times a year, and on their journey, these were the songs that they would sing as they caravan together on their, on their way to Jerusalem. And Psalm 130, is a, it's an interesting psalm because it deals with our... Um, the depth of our desire, the depth of our desire for God. And in the first verse, look what he says. He says, out of the depths, I have cried to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. And what he's talking about is this deep-rooted desire to, uh, to commune with God, to talk to God, to, to receive something from Him, to... To make that connection. And oftentimes, in the Psalms, you'll, you'll catch uh, these kind of phrases. For example, one of them that, uh, that you may be familiar with is, As a deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after you. The idea that, that in the same way that a, a deer wants water when it's thirsty, that's how the Psalm says, how I want you, God. That's the way I want to relate to you. That's how I want to commune with you. And so he begins this, uh, this song, this psalm, that way, from the depths of his heart. And then he, he kind of ex- expresses why. In verse 3, he says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? So if, if God kept account of wrong, then we're all tongue. And uh, that's why David would write <clears throat> in in the Psalms that that uh, being having our sins forgiven it's uh, it's uh, one of the greatest things there is and so he he go he's looking okay the reason why from the depths of my heart I want to commune with you I want to have a connection with you he looks back to his sin man if 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 you kept track of my sin then I couldn't stand nobody could stand before you while we are all guilty. While we are all guilty, God, through his word, tells us, uh, Psalm 103, you might remember, he said, as far as, what? The east is from the west. That's how far I have removed your sins from me. That God pushes them out. That, that when he forgives, he forgives. He forgives utterly and, and totally. So, he says, if you should mark, I could not stand before you, God. But... Remember, every time we see that phrase, it's a sharp contrast. So whatever he's been saying before, when you see the word but, it's a, it means sharp contrast. Turn in, uh, sometimes 180 degrees away. It's why oftentimes I tell people, people will come to me and say, Jackie, you know, you're so wonderful and nice and, and handsome, but, and they put that phrase, but, 
I usually stop them and say, that little three-letter word erases everything you just said. <laughs> so the idea of the word but, sharp contrast, we're turning, we're looking. If, if, if I had to stand before God guilty, I wouldn't be able to stand. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared, that you may be revered, that you may be honored, that you would be recognized uh, for, for your beauty, your majesty, how awesome you are. That's all wrapped up. In that word, feared. So, rather than having to stand before God guilty, there's forgiveness. There's forgiveness. All the way back. It's not a New Testament thing, guys. Forgiveness is Old Testament. Man, God was forgiving his people over and over, pretty much like he does us. Forgives us over and over. And it's always been on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. For the Old Testament saint... He looked forward to the blood. It's like a charging, putting his sin on a, on a, on a credit card. And the, the payment would be made when Christ came. For you and I, we look back to the cross. Same way, that payment was made. So if we are in Christ, in Christ Jesus, that's a, that's a position of wholeness and forgiveness with God the Father. And so he's describing the, the beauty of that. And then he says in verse 5, I wait for the Lord. Yes, my soul waits. And that word, it, it carries with it the idea of hoping, longing, yearning. All that is wrapped up in that phrase, to wait. It's not like I might think, you know, Kathy says, well, I'm going to go get ready. Why don't you wait here? Now, that's a different kind of wait. When Kathy says that, I go on the couch, take out a pillow, take a nap. It's, we're an hour out, at least. That's different. The kind of waiting that the Bible talks about is that yearning. The best description I ever heard of it was, you guys remember when we were little? Can you go back that far? John has a hard time getting back that far. Huh, John? <laughs> you, I know you do. <laughs> Yes, we have good memories, but they're just not as long as they used to be. So what we, what we do, if you think back to when you were a kid, you remember when you were a kid, I don't know how it was for you guys, but at a Robert's house, Christmas Eve was always an exciting time. And, uh, you know, eventually we figured out that it was Grandpa that dressed up like Santa Claus, but somebody dressed up like Santa Claus come in, and all of us, it's one of the few times my family was all in one room at the same time. So we're all in one room and all us little kids, because really that's what it was all for, right? All us little kids are by the window, sitting on the couch, looking out the window, waiting. You see the difference? Just longing for getting it to see. I didn't ever understand how come Santa Claus got out of a station wagon. But he'd get out the station wagon and come in with his... Uh, and it, it, so there was this longing. That's what the Bible's talking about. The, the waiting with expectancy, longing to see his face. And so when the scripture tells us to wait on the Lord, that's how it's supposed to be. That there's this depth uh, of relationship within us that wants to commune and see him. Uh, and then it matters to us like a deer wants water. That we have this longing. So this is what he's talking about. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I do hope. Now that's the key for us as believers. Because in the word of God, that's where we find the promises and the hope that we're supposed to cling to. That we hold on to in the hard days. 
So that knowing that, that right around the corner, there is a, a re, day of rejoicing. And so it's in the Word of God. The Word of God tells us that. So what's he say? I hope in your Word. Now, in order for the hope of the Word of God to get into my head, i got to put it there. i got to spend time in it. I tell people all the time, look, if you're having a hard time um, feeling depressed, feeling down, simple. Read a book of Philippians. Four chapters, not very long. And don't stop reading it until the attitude changes. Because Philippians is all about joy. Four little chapters, tons of promises in there to hold on to. Tons of things to just lay your teeth on and say, I'm going to hold on to this. That, that, that God, your word is my hope. That these things are true. And that's what the psalmist says. And then he gives us a, a little word picture, right? The concept about how he's waiting. About how he's longing, about how he's hoping. Look what he says. He says, more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. The idea that intensity, more intensity than those. Now, what's he talking about? You say, well, I'm never watching for the morning. When I go to bed, uh, you know, an extra long, my favorite day of the year, they turn the clocks the way I get to sleep more. Which way is that? Back? Whatever it is. That's a, that's a good day. That's an hour extra sleep. I, I like that. I enjoy that. So, so what does he mean more than those who wait for the morning? Well, I just did this little stint in the Marine Corps and I figured it all out. Yeah, when you're the last watch of the night, you are looking for the morning. You think, oh, what's he mean? Oh, no, you know, you go out that last watch, three in the morning till six in the morning. But you cannot wait. To start to see the sun poke up, because you know that means I'm done with this, and somebody else has taken over. And that's what he's referring to. He's referring to the last watch, the last watch of the night. And the sun coming up was like a signal that we got through. You know, no bad guys came, nothing went wrong. You know, the watch is done, we're good. So the, that the way that those, that's the way people watch for the morning. This is psalmist saying, that's how I'm watching for God. Because I know when I see his face, it's the end of all that stuff. It's the end of all the, the garbage that, that has to be dealt with in, in life. And he told us about it way back in the 23rd Psalm. He didn't say, you're never going to walk through the dark. He said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So... Everybody gets to go in. But he told us something else about it. What did he say? I'm walking how? Through. And say so he had to stay in the middle. You're walking through it. And so if we walk into the dark, if we walk into the night, what are, we, what are we looking for? Morning. And what's morning? The return of our Lord. The return of Jesus Christ. Seeing him face to face. That's the morning. It says that, that there may be sorrow for the evening, but what happens? Joy comes in the morning. So there's all this hope that the psalmist is clinging to, man. It's like, this is how, this is the intensity with which I'm hoping in the Lord, trusting in the Lord, and holding on to His promises. And then, look at this uh, exhortation to Israel. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Now, I'll, I'll teach you a little trick. Anytime you have phrases like this in the Psalms, oh, Israel, you can put your name in there. Because the same, it can be the same exhortation to you and I. Hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy. With Him is abundant 
redemption. You guys get the idea what abundant redemption is? You ever had messed up things in your life? I mean, you personally have messed up things in your life. So if it hasn't happened to you, if it hasn't happened to you guys, um, use me as an example. I mess up stuff all the time. I'm thankful that there is abundant redemption. What's redemption? It's, it's God's ability to take the junk I made, you know, my best efforts all, you know, equaling a, a, a bunch of garbage. It, I always looked at it in my life as ash. No matter how much stuff I tried to put together, how good my intentions were, how, how much I, I had this idea of how things were going to turn out better, somehow it always ended up catching fire. And at the end of the fire, what do you got? A bunch of ash, right? You ever tried to build anything with that? You pick it up, <laughs> it's just floating all over the place. With the leftover pieces of, of whatever I thought was going to be so glorious. Well, look, here's what God says. I give them what? Beauty for ashes. And God knows how to put it together. He knows how to put it back together. That is the abundance of his redemption. That it's not that he redeems you one time. It's not that he just he, he just wants to work in your life once. And you know what? You keep, you keep asking. And so God's burnt out. Aren't you thankful he don't do that? He doesn't get burnt out. In fact, he says, ask me more. Ask me more. Talk to me more. Doesn't mean we're always going to get what we want. But he's the one with abundant redemption. Man, he's able... To buy back, to purchase back things that have been auctioned off to the enemy. He buys it back. That's good news, man. That's a good thing to to hold on to, the abundant redemption of God. He shall redeem. Remember what I told you about Israel? Feel free to put your name in there. He shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Is God able To save us from all our sin or only most of it? Is there one sin that's just going to get us? Doggone, I was doing so good, but then there's that one. That one, you know, I keep messing up the same way. I keep messing up the same way. How many times did, did, when Peter came to Jesus, he said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my neighbor for the same sin? As many as seven. He thought that was a lot. How many of us have burned a seven times worth of forgiveness? Oh, my gosh. Man, I, I burned that in the first two years of marriage. Maybe in the first year. But I have a chance because our first year of marriage, we were apart. So I was in Alaska and she was in California. So there was probably not as many mess-ups. It don't take long to go through Seven. So what did God say? Jesus says to him, no, no, Peter, that's, that's nice. But I say, how much? Seventy times seven. Well, that's 490. How many of us have been through 490? I think I've been through 490. What is it that Jesus is referring to? Okay, the land was supposed to remain, uh, have a Sabbath rest every seven years. Right? For 490 years of Israel's existence, God said, The sixth year on your harvest, I'll give you double. The seventh year, let the land be fallow. Don't plant nothing in it. 
It's also good for the land, right? Everybody knows that? So, so the Lord said that. So he gave them double. And what did the Jews do? What did the children of Israel do? They decided if I work next year too, I get ahead. So they didn't ever give the land its rest. They didn't give the land rest for 490 years. So in the book of Leviticus, I want to say Leviticus 26, that sound right, John? Leviticus 26, God says, look, if you don't give the land the rest it's supposed to get, I will. So after 490 years, the children of Israel went into captivity into Babylon for how long? 70 years. One year each for 70 years that the land was owed. The land got its 70 years of rest. So when Jesus says 70 times 70, he's not talking about 490 times. He's saying God forgave Israel for the same sin for 490 years. Now, which of us is going to live that long? John might be the closest. <laughs> None of us are. What's the point? What's Jesus' point? You forgive. You forgive. You forgive. What does the scripture tell us? The scripture tells us that if we want our Father in heaven to forgive us, what do we do? We forgive others. We forgive others. Jesus told a story, right? Two guys owed a great debt. You guys remember, right? Two guys owed a great debt. One forgave. He was forgiven. The other, uh, um, the, the one guy brought before the king, huge debt he can't pay. Pay me back. Go to jail. I can't pay. Falls down and asks for mercy. The king gives him mercy. He goes back and won't forgive his brother for lesser. What did the king do? Throw him in jail. Go back to jail then. You don't want to be forgiven and you don't want to give the same forgiveness I gave you to somebody else? Go to jail. So we want to we want to have that attitude. Plus, we want to recognize that there are attributes of God which are communicable. Meaning there are attributes of God that should be reflected in our life. Think of some of those attributes. What are they? How about love? Shouldn't love be reflected in our life? One of those attributes should be forgiveness. That we should have an attitude of forgiveness. What about mercy? Yeah, that's one of those communicable attributes. That we should have mercy, compassion, all of those things that we want to see that's in the character of God <coughs> that ought to be reflected in us. And hopefully as we rejoice over God's ability to redeem our sin and forgive us our sin, then we will have a similar attitude. When we look at Psalm 131, another song of ascent. Look how it starts. It's pretty cool. Lord, my heart is not haughty nor my eyes lofty. Now, here's what he's saying. Uh, and, and Yeah, this is not the one. There's another one coming up later that doesn't quite uh, translate so smooth in the poetry. But here's what he's saying. Man, I am in utter, complete, total submission to you. I'm standing before you, God, in all humility. That's what he's talking about. All humility. What does the Bible tell us about what happens when we humble ourselves? says, you humble yourself, and what's God say? I will lift you up. You humble yourself, and I will lift you up. We, wanna, we want that humility in our life, right? Doesn't, doesn't the Bible tell us that that was an attitude within Jesus Christ? 
Would you say that's a communicable attribute? That, that he came from heaven to earth? That's humility, isn't it? That, that that could be reflected in our lives, that we would be humble men and women. Lord, my heart is not haughty or proud. My eyes are not lofty. I'm not looking up, looking over everybody else. <coughs> neither do I concern myself with great matters. Now that doesn't mean neither am I concerned with the things that are going on in this world that are all crazy. That's not what the kind of great matters he's talking about. What he's talking about there is that I am not preoccupied with greatness. You get what I mean? So when he says, I do not concern myself with greatness, it's the attitude of making himself great. My goal is not, I'm not preoccupied with my own greatness, building myself up, creating a, a, this incredible kingdom, whatever that thing might be. What is it that Jesus said? Remember when Jesus came, he said for us to have a, a particular attitude in our life uh, that was different than all the other Gentiles and all the other people who had needs and who want to build kingdoms and who want to have all this stuff. What did he say? He told us, seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And all of these things will be added unto you. What he's saying is, just like what he told the, the nation of Israel, the sixth year, you, you, I'll give you double, so the seventh year, you just make it all about me. Only the difference is, Jesus is just saying, you just make it all about me, and I'll get the rest, we'll put the rest together. You just make it all about me. I, I was blessed. I don't like basketball. We got basketball fans here? Sorry. <laughs> I don't like basketball, man. I, I don't know what to tell you. It's the opposite of football. Football is a sport, you know, and basketball is a game. But, sorry. <laughs> now I got a spot, a spot to poke. I got to poke it. Um, but I was watching the Golden State Warriors. I watched game seven. And uh, was introduced to Curry. Man, that dude is for real. And what I what I really liked about him, I don't I don't know a lot about him except that he's he's it's his second MVP this year. I think this is his second MVP, which is kind of a big deal. And that dude is a hardcore Bible believing Christian man, hard hardcore. In fact, I I, I heard that he let go of a twenty eight million dollar Nike contract because they wouldn't let him put a Bible verse on the shoes. That's real. That is, seek ye first the kingdom of God. That, that's, that's what that guy's about. And God says, I'll give all these other things back to you. Man, that dude looks like he's having more fun than anybody I've ever seen in my life. And it's not, it's not that he doesn't take it serious or that he's not working out. He's not selfish. I mean, he just, it was a joy so don't tell nobody I said this, but it was a joy to watch that basketball game. Because he was not selfish. He was dishing balls off to other guys. Um, it, it was, uh, it was fun. I, I catch myself smiling watching basketball. That's bad. So, but I catch myself 
I catch myself smiling. Why? Because here's this guy, he's a Christian, and you know, he's not getting hammered by everybody else, because you can't hammer him, because he scores like 40 points a game, and you don't get to do that to guys that are that good. So what do you do to those guys? You just shut this, and open this. And so he's got kind of a unique opportunity, and every time, I, every time he gets a chance, man, he's talking about the Lord. It's a blessing. But you can see in his attitude and the way he does things, he's about the Lord first. And then everything else comes after that. And what's God doing? He's honoring him for that humility, for that attitude that he has. And I was, I was just blessed to, to see in these days a guy like that. A guy like that that was just loving, uh, loving the Lord, loving on God. It was pretty cool. So, not concerning himself with making himself great, but making the name of Jesus Christ known. That's, that's what I really saw there. Verse 2, Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. So the idea in verse 2 is I, 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 there was a moment of screaming. Like think about a kid when he's hungry, right? Wants his bottle. Crying, noise, noise. Somebody make the noise go away. How do you make noise? Stick a bottle. Boom. Noise goes away. So the picture he is saying here is, look, I've calmed and quieted my soul. So he's, he's uptight or agitated about something, worried about something. He said, look, I quieted my soul like a weaned child. That word for weaned could also be contented. Contented. I mean, a child that's been, that's got what he needs. It's the same way that, that, that a child that is, has been nurtured, or fed is just confident in his mother's arms. He says, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Man, I'm, I'm content with you. I'm quieted my soul. My, my, my soul's kind of freaking out. There's crazy stuff going around. But look, I'm humble before you, God. And I know that, that, that it's not about my greatness. It's about your greatness. And so I'm just going to stay here with you um, contented. Contented with you. So what's he say in verse 3? Oh, Israel, remember, you can put your name in there. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Man, put your hope in him. And that's just a picture. The psalmist is singing this psalm about what it is for him to, to humble himself, to quiet his soul when his soul's freaking out, humble himself down, and just wait on the Lord. Be in that place where he has contentment. Paul would write to Timothy and say, Godliness with contentment is what? Great gain, man. That's good. That's good. And that's what we see <coughs> in the 131st Psalm. Then Psalm 132. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions. So there's a this psalm is going to kind of rehearse the history of David wanting to build the temple, the ark being lost, the people finding the ark. And bringing it back. And there are several questions that are going to be asked. Lord, will you do this? Lord, will you do that? And then several answers at the end of the psalm. Let's look. Lord, remember David and his afflictions. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house. Or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. Until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So he said, God, remember that back in the old days when David wanted to build you a house? That's what he's talking about. You remember David's desire, right? His deep desire to say, man, I want God to have a place. It's his. You know, I got this nice palace, but 
But God's living in a tent. And really, guys, the reason that that was the way it was is think of the symbolism. How is it Jesus going to come? In a palace? No, he's coming in a tent. A lot of, a lot of flash? Nope. That tabernacle, the Old Testament tabernacle, is such a perfect picture of Christ. Every piece of it is a, is a representation of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so he's saying, remember that. Remember the yearning. And then look what he says in verse 6. Now in verse 6, they're looking toward the ark. So <clears throat> what they don't tell you about, after verse 5, remember the children of Israel had the ark and Saul had this great idea to take it to battle and he lost it. So it was kind of a big deal because God dwelt where the ark was. And the Philistines had it. You guys remember the story? The Philistines had it and they put it in their tent with their God. And every morning they'd go back out to the tent and their God was on his face in front of the ark. And they'd stand their God back up. And the next day the God was on his face again. And the third time they stand him up. Then when he fell over he broke. So I couldn't stand him up anymore. And they started getting sick and having, uh, oh gosh, I don't know if I want to go into it. They started getting hemorrhoids. And so, in an effort to try to, it's actually in the Bible. In an effort to try to appease God, they, they crafted golden hemorrhoids. I have no idea what they look like. Don't ask me, I don't know. They crafted gold hemorrhoids and they put it in the ark. With mice. With mice, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, all this craziness. Now, all during that time, the Israelites are like, where's the ark? We lost the ark. Where, where is it? Where is it? And so this next section of the psalm talks about their joy in discovering where it was. Remember, they, they sent it out with uh, heifers. John, I get it wrong every time. Heifers or calves? No, it was cows that had calves, and they locked the calves in the stall and turned the cows, took the cows, the cows to the thing, and they went on lowing. Lowing. So the cows had calves. They locked the calves away, so the cows should have tried to go to the calves, but they didn't. They walked toward Jerusalem uh, because, well, they were carrying something for God. So <coughs> here's then. So you, you kind of got the background to that. We come to verse six. Behold, we heard of it in in Ephrathah. So they say, oh, we've we've heard something about the ark. We found it in the fields of the woods. Well, there it is, just walking back to us with a couple of cows bringing it. So let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. So he's talking about that ark of the covenant. Now keep in mind, sometimes we say, well, what? what's the big deal about the ark? Remember I told you, everything in the tabernacle is a picture of, of Christ. Everything. And the ark is the centerpiece in the tabernacle. So what's the ark? It's a box made out of wood. Overlaid with gold. The wood speaks of humanity. The gold speaks of divinity. That Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And in that box, what was in the box? Think about the stuff that they put in there. The Ten Commandments, which what? They broke. Remember? What else was in there? A bowl of manna. The bowl of manna from the wandering in the wilderness. What did that symbolize? Well, God always called manna bread from heaven. In John chapter 6, Jesus said... I am the bread from heaven. 
He's a picture of manna. What did manna sustain the people in the wilderness? What does Jesus do? Sustains us. So he's a picture of that bread. But the people despised that bread and they called it manna. What's it? What's that? God, I'm sick of what's it? I want something else. Give us some quail to eat. So they put manna in the box. <laughs> there was a big rebellion against Aaron, the high priest. And so they said, why should Aaron have to be the voice peace, voice peace for God? Any of us could be the voice peace for God. Why should we listen to anything he said? So they said, well, let's let God decide. So they all took their staffs, all the ones who thought they should be in charge, and they put it in the tabernacle. And the next day, Aaron's rod budded. So they all knew this stick got out fruit on it. God said, Aaron's my guy. Aaron's the guy I'm, I'm walking through. I'm, I'm speaking through. So, you know... Get over yourselves. It's not about us. It's about him. Remember all that humility we talked about a little while ago? So, there, Aaron's rod's in there. So, so what does all that symbolize? It symbolizes the rebellion of man, the, the, the rejection of man, and man's inability to keep the law. That's in the box of the ark. So, the, basically the box, which is a, is a symbol of Christ, goes into, what goes into it? All the failures of mankind. What did Jesus Christ die on the cross for? All our sin. How was that symbolized in the ark? It was all inside. Then what did they put over it? A piece of hammered gold. Gold that was beaten. The picture of, of Jesus Christ, God. Gold that speaks of divinity and being hammered, being beaten by the fists of men. And so that hammered work, two angels looking down to the top of the box... At all the failures of mankind, and in that middle space, the mercy seat would go the blood of the Lamb. All of that is talking about Jesus. So when they're, when they're saying, man, we, we want the ark, where's the ark, where's the ark? It's all symbolic of the Christ. For you and I, he fulfills all those same things for us. Only not symbolically. So when we hear them, <coughs> when we see them, oh man, I heard about you. You're coming. I heard about you're here. I heard about your ability to, to lead us in worship and forgiveness and all of these things. But just see the yearning of their heart for that. The excitement for the ark, this piece of furniture. Then our excitement for Christ ought to at least equal that. He says... Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. <clears throat> Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and your saints shout for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Every king after David would sing this song. And they would say to God, as they rehearsed all of this stuff, don't turn your face away from your anointed was the anointed. God, God made a promise to David, right? If your children will walk after me, then there will always be a throne for them. There will always be a throne for them. So they would sing this psalm and they would say, man, don't turn your face away from me, God. Don't turn your face. The idea that we want to walk with you, we want to be with you. Unfortunately, all of David's descendants weren't like that, right? But it does point to the ultimate descendant. The ultimate son of David. Which is who? Jesus Christ. The ultimate son of David. 
So here's what he says, verse 11. He's going to answer these, these requests, that their priests would be clothed, and the saints would shout for joy, and that God would not turn his face away from the anointed. Verse 11, the Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. That's why Jesus Christ is called the son of David. In his humanity, he was of the line of David, the lineage of David. And he will reign for how long? Forever. He will reign forever. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimony, which I will teach them, their sons also will sit on your throne forevermore. So God said, look, if, they, if they'll do this, then they will. But I want David to know the fruit of his body will sit on his throne forever. So Jesus Christ fulfills that promise to David. But there was also a promise to David's kids. If you walk with the Lord, God will continue to allow the monarchy to to go on now the monarchy's gone right because the sons of david they reach a point where they don't want to walk with the lord anymore Uh, he says in verse 13 for the lord has chosen zion he has desired it for his dwelling place when we're talking about jerusalem i always wondered man i I don't know i've 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 been blessed I, i think i've got to go to israel Probably eight times. This this November will be my ninth trip over to Israel. And uh, when I walk through Jerusalem, I think, what in the world is everybody fighting over? I mean, it's stone and dirt. Now, I think it's beautiful because of the history. You guys get what I mean? But, you know, the people shooting at each other over there aren't fighting over history. It just seems... Seems apropos to me that God chose a place on the earth to say, this will be the city of God. And man's been fighting it o- over it ever since. And man will continue to fight over it until the king of kings puts his foot down. Until the king of kings sits on the throne. Until that day, the city of peace won't know peace. It'll be the city of war that man fights over doesn't even know. I don't even think man knows why they're fighting over it. And it isn't just the Jews and the Arabs that are fighting. Christians spent about a thousand years fighting over that place. You know that little thing called the Crusades, right? Everybody remember? That part of history we'd like to remove. We watch the news and we hear about a terrorist attack and we think, oh my gosh, what a horrible, how could those people do such things? Oh, just back up the time. The church did it first. And we called it a holy war. Sound familiar? Interesting, huh? Bible says, whatsoever a man sows, so shall he reap. If you sow to the wind, you shall reap the whirlwind. Oh, crazy. The things that go on in this world. Now, isn't it, can't we be thankful that God redeems eternally? So even if we make a mess, can God redeem it? Sure he can. How's he redeem it? Through the gospel. Through the gospel. Because the gospel changed the heart of man. Radical transformations take place through the gospel. Exciting, exciting thing. So he's <coughs> saying, God chose this place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. And I will satisfy her poor with bread. 
And I also will clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud with joy. All the way through, God's answering what they asked. Remember what they asked earlier? Arise, O Lord, to your resting place. You and the ark of your strength, let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and your saints shout with joy. Now currently, it's a bunch of, of war and battle going on, but is it always that way? No, God's word says, look, it ain't always going to be that way. It's not always going to be that way. It will be the city of peace. That's what it means. Yeru Shalom. City peace. Hasn't known a lot of peace. But God says, that's going to be my resting place. That's where I will return to rule and reign. And then look what he says, verse 17 and 18. There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon him, uh, but, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. There's three things that he refers to in these last two uh, uh, verses that we see often throughout uh, Bible prophecy. And that is horn, lamp, crown. Horn, lamp, crown. Horn speaks of strength. The lamp speaks of clarity, understanding. And the crown Speaks of dignity. So what's he saying? I'm going to make the horn of David, the strength of David grow. And I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. I'm going to give him clarity, understanding. And upon himself, his crown, dignity, his rule shall flourish. So God promising to fulfill these things that the scripture lays out for us. That will ultimately be fulfilled in the return of the king. But that we can point to at least partial fulfillment now. I mean, look, the nation of Israel is a miracle. You guys get that? I got like an eight DVD set that kind of does the history of the nation from the Holocaust forward. When you think a, a bunch of Holocaust survivors held onto that country when they became a country in 1948, when everybody around them wanted them all dead. You don't think that's a little miraculous? I think it's a little miraculous. And I think it's a fulfillment of God saying, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you and I'll take care of you. Now, they don't acknowledge it. But that never stopped God before. But it does say in Scripture, Scripture does tell us that one day they're going to look at Jesus and mourn after him like one mourns for his only son. And they're going to say to him, where did you get these wounds in your hands and feet? And Jesus will say, I got them in the house of my friends. The scripture tells us one day the nation is going to wake up. And they're going to see the fingerprints of God. And they're going to have... <clears throat> this incredible awakening take place. And who knows? Maybe we get to be part of it by sharing the gospel, right? By reaching out. What a glorious day that will be. Paul talks about it because he says, look, if it's been glorious that God has grafted you, the wild olive branch, into the olive tree, if their demise, their cutting off, their being put away, worked out for your glory, this incredible work of salvation where God has brought salvation to the world, then how much more 
their restoration. That's pretty incredible. Romans 9, 10, and 11 lays out that concept for us. Let's look at Psalm 133. You say, Jackie, you're crazy. It's only three verses. We can do it. You've heard this before. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together. How? In unity. Man, isn't it cool to be unified? Don't it suck to be fighting? Man, I told Kathy, I can can deal with anything in the world if her and me are okay. But if her and me ain't okay, man, everything is earth-shattering. How blessed it is when there's peace. When there's unity in a body. (coughs) When there's unity among our brethren. And then he describes it. Three words for running down. This is what, remember I told you that the, the, the Hebrew doesn't quite translate. But the idea, there's three pictures about the beauty of brethren dwelling together and what it's like. And then he tells us, it's like precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron. Yeah, that's why I have a beard now. This verse. <laughs> I want to dump oil down it. Because it says, it's as good as brethren dwelling together in unity. And uh, i got to put a fair amount of beard oil on it every day anyway. So, anyways, you guys get the idea. Pins oil is not so good, no. Okay, so it's like oil running down. So there's three pictures of running down. Oil running down, down a beard. Um, oil running down the edge of his garments. You see it? Running down on the edge of his garments. And then, it's like the dew of Hermon descending upon. Same word, though. Running down. So it's like the water on Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain, running down to Mount Zion, a smaller mountain. So the same picture as oil running off the head of Aaron, down his beard, down the edge of his clothes, and the picture of water running down Mount Hermon, down to uh, Zion, or to Jerusalem. The idea from high to low They get to drink of the same refreshment, the same healing properties, the same (coughs) uh, feeling, because the the oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit, right? So the Holy Spirit, not just the Holy Spirit on the head. What's the Holy Spirit? Don't just take a corner. What's the Holy Spirit do? It keeps coming down. It comes from your head down through your, your whole body. It continues to run down, just like water flows from the top of the mountain, all the way down to the bottom. Same idea. So the, the oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. The water is a picture of refreshment. In fact, if you ever go on my Facebook page, I got a picture of the waterfall in En Gedi. En Gedi, that's the place where David hid in the caves. And if, there's, if, it's, if it gets really hot and you want a, a picture of refreshment, go look. Because you'll say, man, I want to stand under that waterfall. And there's good news for you. There's still time. There's a thing out there. Just fill it out and say, I want to go. And you can come stand under the waterfall in En Gedi, this picture of refreshment. <coughs> for there the Lord commanded the blessing. What's the blessing? Life everlasting. That's a pretty cool blessing, right? That's a pretty cool blessing. The thing that God has blessed them with. It flows from the highest to the lowest. There's not, there's not a person around that can't benefit from 
that promise that God gives. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Thank you for the opportunity that we've had to gather together. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to look through the Psalms, Lord God. And we're just